You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. And welcome to the Stanton Library and the Writers at Stanton event. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Peter Van Onsenlin. I'm sorry, Onsenlin. Onsenlin. To discuss his book, Victory, the insider story of Labour's return to power. Before we begin these proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors, past and present. They have never ceded sovereignty and remain strong in their culture and their enduring connection to the land. Victory was written in collaboration with Wayne Ermington. It goes inside the campaigns of all the players in the 2022 election to reveal how Labor orchestrated its fifth ever election win. It raises the question, will the Albanese govern as a careful reformer of the campaign or will this socially progressive leader recapture Australia's lost egalitarianism? Peter is an Australian political academic, author, political journalist and commentator. He is a contributing editor at the Australian newspaper. Between 2010 and 2017, he hosted several programs at Sky News Australia. Please welcome Peter Van Olsen. Thank, thank you very much and thanks everyone uh, for being here. I appreciate it. I feel like uh, this is my, my chance to, to be out and about for the first time in a few weeks. I, I feel like I should just say this at the start. I, I had surgery on my nose. Uh, I had a cancer on it, which is apparently all fixed, um, but I've sort of, as a result, been having a face for radio over the last couple of weeks. And, and this is my first outing. I just didn't want you to think that after the book, Scott Morrison punched me in the nose or something like that. Uh, he, uh, he, he did no such thing. Thank you for being here. I'll leave plenty of time for Q&A because that's usually, I think, the best thing that we can do is to have that back and forth and discuss some of the things that, that interest you most and hopefully they're in the book and then I can parlay off that so that you have the interest in reading the whole thing. But what I wanted to do structurally, I suppose, was go through my speech today in the same order of the sections of the book because we put it in three parts. There's the pre-election campaign component of the last term of government from when Labor and Anthony Albanese saw themselves as, if you like, inheriting the poison chalice in defeat after the 2019 election. How do they rebrand the party? How do they try to become competitive? And all of that was framed in the context, obviously, of the pandemic as well, when it struck at the beginning of 2020. Not to, not to neglect the bushfires either, which were a major moment. And I want to talk about some of the key milestones that I think were important in the context of Labor's win at the recent election from that point in time. The second section of the book, which is the meatiest, if you like, is the six weeks of the campaign, where chapter by chapter we go through week by week. And this is where I think what, what I really enjoyed about the writing of this book was the access that we managed to have on both sides to the campaign strategists on both sides, but also in particular to the now Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, that the chance to, if you like, get inside their tent and see what was going on week by week at their tactical as well as at their strategy meetings. It's not actually an opportunity that Wayne and I have had before when writing our books. Back when we did the Howard biography, he was very generous and cooperated with us, um, but he was still a little bit cagey. 
uh, and in subsequent books uh, that we've talked about, the Liberal Party at different iterations with you know, losses of leaders and so forth, they weren't exactly forthcoming in their cooperation with us. But on this book, uh, the deal that we did with Labor was that we're writing a book if you win and we're going to chronicle how you went throughout the course of the campaign, good and bad, um, but if you find a way to lose the election again, well then we're going to take stock and take a little bit longer to come up with a more fulsome book rather than the one about the election, because we can't exactly call it victory if you're lost. Uh, so, and I don't, I'm not sure anyone would have wanted to buy a book on Labor's defeat uh, as opposed to Labor's victory. So that's the second section. And the final section, which I think is probably the most important set of questions now that Labor has won, is the whole where to from here. A parliament that has got a, a, a dominance of the Teals without a majority in the lower house, a near to Greens majority, uh, sorry, near to Greens balance of power in the Senate, a Labor majority but only just, and a Liberal Party that has really been wrecked by a war on two fronts with both the Teals as well as losing to the Labor Party in the two-party contest. Where do they go from here? What are the policy agendas that we face? And obviously the economic climate that we're in was real during the writing of the book, so we talk a little bit about that as well in terms of what might come next. So they're the, they're the three parts of the book and they're the sort of three parts of what I want to talk about today and then we can build off of that. So in the, in the initial period when Labor took over after, or when Anthony Albanese took over the Labor leadership after the defeat in 2019, it's easy to forget this now because Scott Morrison ran into more than the occasional problem as he counted down to the election and it started to look like unless they were going to find a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory for a second time in a row, it started to look like the, the coalition government was cooked when we got closer to the election. But it's easy to forget that if you go back to... 2019, when Bill Shorten found a way to lose that election, the Labor Party looked like it was a mess, the coalition looked like it was ascendant, the Liberal Party felt like there were a swathe of seats that they hadn't picked up at that election, that they were very close to doing so at the next election, and almost unusually for a government that has just won an election, there were a whole host of marginal seats held by the Labor Party in opposition that almost fell. And there were very, very few seats on the coalition side that were close on the electoral pendulum for Labor to pick up. So it looked to most Labor observers like a two-term strategy at best was what they were going to need to overhaul this Liberal government and get back into power. That's an important context for understanding Anthony Albanese coming to the leadership because at one level he was the obvious candidate because he'd narrowly lost to Bill Shorten back in 2013. He'd won the membership vote on the new structure of how they elect their leaders. And he was the heir apparent if Bill Shorten fell over. But that wasn't what people were expecting. We've got an anecdote in the book where Anthony Albanese is packing up his office, his shadow ministerial office, in the lead up to the 2019 election. And he's confident that he's moving office no matter what. Because if they win the election, he gets to go into the ministerial wing of Parliament House and take up one of those offices. If they lose the election, well, he's moving anyway because he's moving into the opposition leader's office uh, because he's the obvious heir apparent. Sure enough, that's what happened. But the difference was early on, he was very much seen as a seat warmer in the Labor leadership. A lot of people on his own side didn't think he would even get to the election. Even if he got to the election, they were pretty convinced that he would find a way to lose that election. And so the Sharks were circling right from the beginning. And that's important context because that was where he was at. And then suddenly, reasonably suddenly, by the end of that year, the bushfires hit. 
And Scott Morrison had all sorts of weaknesses on the way that he responded to that. You don't need me to go through that. That was something that, if you like, gave Labor a political opportunity, but no one was really still looking at them like a viable alternative government. It was more just that people had lost time and respect for Scott Morrison so soon after him winning an election. Now, all of a sudden, when the pandemic hit, you had a situation where Anthony Albanese became a, a rather irrelevant opposition leader. We're used to, in this country, the contest being the Prime Minister being challenged by the opposition leader. But suddenly, as we know from the last couple of years, it's all been the Prime Minister and the Premiers. The federal opposition leader became a virtual irrelevance through most of the pandemic, not invited to national cabinet, uh, whinging about parliament not sitting, which is something that as a political scientist I was furious about, but most in the public didn't seem to think it was that big a deal. And so he was very marginalised, and we know he was already not a particularly well-known figure in the wider public circles, well-known in political circles. He'd been in parliament longer than any post-World War II prime minister incoming from opposition. John Howard had been in parliament a long time, but not as long as Anthony Albanese when he won the election. He's also, at 59 years of age, if you can believe this, he's actually the oldest opposition leader to win an election in Australian political history and take over the prime ministership. I think that's actually a negative because that speaks to the fact that we are a bit ageist when it comes to our leaders. I think if the last decade has taught us anything, uh, it's that a little bit more experience and poise wouldn't be a bad thing uh, in leadership. But at 59 years of age, no other opposition leader older than that has actually won their way into the prime ministership, which was not actually a fact I knew until we started researching this book. So the context of Anthony Albanese is he was over the hill, not known, irrelevant, taken over the poison chalice of leadership and not seen by the circling sharks that are his colleagues as likely to even get to the next election, much less win it. Then all of a sudden, uh, he rises from that. So the key moment in time that actually bedded him down as Labor leader to get to the election before Scott Morrison had his problems during the pandemic that inevitably contributed to the defeat was him winning and Labor winning the Eden Monero by-election. It's not something that a lot of people talk about now because most people didn't notice it. We were all frantic during the course of the early stages of the pandemic. But in those first few months after the pandemic, he faced a by-election in Eden Monero where Mike Kelly, his then member, was retiring for health reasons and he needed to find a way to hold that seat. Kirsty McBride was the candidate. She's now, of course, a minister, was hand-picked by Anthony Albanese and he hit the election trail to try to ensure that he could win that. And one of the things that we noticed in the writing of the book was that there was a real sense amongst his colleagues, they weren't sharing this with him, of course, but there was a sense amongst his colleagues that if he found a way to lose that by-election, as the polls were predicting he would at the start of the campaign, then a leadership challenge would follow of some sort. He threw himself into it, and here's the ultimate of ironies. Yes, they won that election campaign, only just. They held on to Eden Monero, only just. It was already a marginal seat. But if you remember, Barilaro, as the then Deputy Premier, was actually campaigning essentially against the Liberal candidate trying to steal the seat of Eden Monero off the Labor Party because there was personal animosity there. His electorate dovetailed with the federal electorate of Eden Monero. And I'm reliably told by the strategist powers that be in the Liberal, Liberal Party, and I did actually go and check this as well, the data proves it. If the preference flows at that by-election, because John Barillaro, I should say, was advocating that the nationals, anyone who votes nationals, don't preference the Liberal Party, if you can believe that, 
if the preference flows at that by-election had emulated the previous general election from the Nationals to the Liberals, Anthony Albanese would have lost that seat and Labor would have lost the seat, the Liberals would have won it. But on the campaign back of what John Barillaro was doing, disliking the Liberal candidate, the preference flows did not match what they did at the federal election. They therefore went unexpectedly more to Labor than to the Liberals and the Labor Party held the seat. So whether you like Anthony Albanese as Prime Minister or whether you loathe it, you can thank John Barillaro for him becoming Prime Minister because if he had not campaigned the way he had, uh, he would have lost that by-election, the Labor Party and Anthony Albanese, and from everything that we're led to believe, he may well therefore have been rolled as Labor leader and then history would have gone in a very different direction. A hugely important moment in the countdown to the election. The second one that's important, which I won't dwell on for as long, was the car crash that Anthony Albanese had. Uh, it was a lot closer run thing uh, than a lot of people realise. Uh, he was T-boned by a Range Rover, not a small vehicle, uh, and that was a big moment for him, not just with his life flashing before his eyes. That's actually the third car he's had totaled, he told us in interview. Uh, I didn't really want to delve into his driving concerns, but uh, he did assure us that it wasn't his fault. But it was a close-run thing for it. It was a real moment for him, and it was a moment of reflection for him. He lost a lot of weight out the other side of it. He changed his leadership style out the other side of it and became more consultative with his colleagues. That was a real issue for him. A lot of talk about Anthony Albanese being, you know, a lot of it by him, but a lot of talk by Anthony Albanese about him coming from a public housing background uh, in the inner city suburbs of Sydney. He was also an only child. And he wasn't somebody who therefore uh, learnt to play well with others, if you like, growing up. So he was a bit of a loner in politics. Uh, and one of the things that changed for him after that car crash was learning to be more consultative. Some of his colleagues came to him about the need to lose some weight, get healthier, sharpen up his act if he wanted to seriously compete at the next election. And we talk a bit about that uh, in that first section and also get his reflections on that as well as some of his colleagues as well. So these were a couple of key moments. You all know the moments during the campaign with Scott Morrison and the problems that he faced, uh, you know, particularly in the back end of it as it got closer to the election. You all know uh, all the gender-based issues that the Liberal Party faced and that Scott Morrison faced as well. Uh, I won't go into those now. We might talk about some of them in the Q&A. But moving to the second part of the book, uh, which is the week-by-week -week, uh, you know, chapters, one of the things that I really liked uh, about pulling this together, not just covering the campaign as political editor at Network 10 and therefore being immersed in it anyway, but knowing that we were writing the book at the same time, the access points that we got to some extent during, but particularly obviously afterwards once the campaign was over, to be able to really try to get inside both the Labor and the Liberal campaign units, to try to give readers a sense each week of here's what happened here's why, here was what their thinking was, here's what went right and wrong, here's what the internal polling was telling them, here's how they were trying to approach the issues. They would have daily strategy meetings, um, but they also would have a, an all-important, this is the Labor Party, an all-important Sunday afternoon strategy meeting uh, with sections of the leadership group. I won't go into more detail, you can read it in the book. But it, 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 was a real uh, it was a really interesting opportunity to try to give readers that sense of what really went on on the course of the campaign trail at the ups and downs. And, and my analysis of the election campaign at the end of it, uh, and Wayne's obviously, is that the timing of Anthony Albanese getting COVID could not have worked better 
for him and the Labor Party. And, and I say that for this reason. In week one, he had that day one gaffe that we all saw. Uh, we take the view that that was a very serious, genuine gaffe. And had he had more like it, it really could have unwound him as a leader. And the doubts among soft voters who wanted to remove Scott Morrison but did have doubts about Anthony Albanese could have become much realer or more, more real. That didn't happen because we believe that the gotcha media attempts to get follow-up gaffes were inflated and weren't real uh, and were drummed up that subsequently followed. But I don't believe that was the case with that first gaffe. That gaffe on day one, and he acknowledged this as well, as did those we interviewed, was a serious one that could have gone wrong for him. Now, off the back of that, he needed the rest of the first week to try to recover politically. By the end of that first week, he was damaged, I believe. By the end of the second week, which is when he caught COVID after that first debate, he'd won the debate, he'd stabilised the week. Had he caught COVID a week earlier, he would have gone into isolation for seven days off the back of a horrible first week and a horrible first day festering doubts amongst voters. Had it gone any longer and had he caught it in a week or two's time, it would have interfered with the Labor campaign launch in WA, which was all important. It was the state that delivered them four seats. Without it, they certainly wouldn't have got a majority, arguably may not have been able to win the election. And had it interfered with that, who knows what consequence that could have had. But by catching it at the time that he did, he'd stabilised with an election win. It was a chance for his, uh, if you like, the rest of his team, his key players like Tanya Plibersek, uh, I won't talk, I might get asked about it in Q&A about their relationship, but Tanya Plibersek, Jim Chalmers, uh, Richard Miles to a certain extent, Penny Wong certainly, these players were able to take more of a role because Anthony Albanese was stuck in ISO. And in doing so, they were able to show that there was a depth to this team. It wasn't a one-man team where the voters already have a little bit of doubt about the one man. It had a bit of depth to it. And the other thing that him being off in that third week of the campaign at the end of the second week of the election when he caught COVID. The other thing of him being off was it put the focus squarely on Scott Morrison. Presidential election campaigns being what they are, the media like to follow the leaders. If you can't follow the Labor leader, all the attention goes onto the Liberal leader, the Prime Minister, and all the research was showing that Scott Morrison wasn't popular by the time of the election, and more focus on him was bad news for the Liberal Party because it just simply meant that, that it was accentuating the negatives, if you like, during the course of the campaign. So that was another factor. So him catching COVID actually ended up working for Labor. And even as part of writing the book, he talked to us about the time it gave him to regroup uh, at the end of that second week, even though he'd stabilised with the debate win, the first debate win, but also to prepare for what was coming next. Because something that he told us was a surprise come the election for someone who'd been in politics and in parliament for 26 years was the level of ferocity of an election campaign. Most opposition leaders get three years to get used to how tough it is being opposition leader before then having to fight an election campaign as, oppos op as opposition leader. Because of the pandemic and because of him being out of focus, he wasn't necessarily as match fit for that election campaign as some opposition leaders might be. And that's why he was stung quite early on. So having that time off for COVID was quite useful as far as he was concerned. The third part of the book looks at the election night, uh, what happened. We get right inside Anthony Albanese's home, uh, talking to the people who were there. The only other politician other than him who was there was Penny Wong. She introduced him. She didn't know she was introducing him that night until he sprung it on her and she quickly hastily tried to write her speech. 
uh, Anthony Albanese hadn't written a speech for that night. Uh, he actually did that after he got his concession call from Scott Morrison. He was cooking pasta that night, but everyone was too nervous to eat it, uh, other than himself and Penny Wong, apparently. Uh, his son, Nathan, uh, noticed on the betting uh, details that that his father that you could get 13 to 1 if his dad wore a rabbitos tie uh, when he delivered his victory speech. Uh, Anthony Albanese actually put a phone call through uh, to to Paul Erickson, who was his campaign manager, state the national secretary of the Labor Party, and it was you know, he thought it was a very serious phone call. Paul Erickson did. He was there with Wayne Swan as the party president and other senior people at campaign headquarters. And when he got that phone call, he showed everyone that it was the leader and about to be prime minister. He's walked away relatively early in the count. And he thinks that it's some sort of important discussion. And then Anthony Albanese just starts joking with him about how we can get 13 to 1 if I wear a bunny's tie. Maybe I should do that uh, so that we can recoup all the money that we've spent on the campaign. Uh, and Apparently, according to Anthony Albanese, um, Paul Erickson hung up on him. Uh, according to Paul Erickson, he didn't hang up on him, uh, but he was terse with him uh, because he still had some serious business to go that night. So the final section of the book looks at that inside story, if you like, about what actually happened behind the scenes, counting down to that night. And we look at the where to from here for the Liberal Party as well as for the country. Uh, rather than for the Labor Party, because the Labor Party being in government, it's all about what comes next for the country. And for the Liberal Party and the coalition, for that matter, it's what comes next in the wake of the rise of the Teals, uh, which I know is relevant where we're here now, uh, but it's also very relevant in the body politic with what comes next and how Parliament functions. That's littered throughout the book uh, about the rise of the Teals, obviously. But we also, in the third section of the book, talk about what impact the Greens and the Teals are likely to have uh, on where politics goes next. The challenges that Labor will face now, having run a small target election campaign, how do you govern in the wake of that? The Labor Party internally used to describe their small target as a smart target strategy. Uh, and they did that to try to sort of compare it to Bill Shorten's big target strategy that ultimately had a big consequence, which was that he never got the prime ministership. That's all good and well politically speaking. We analyse what it means in public policy. And you're already starting to see some of that with the debate over whether they're going to repeal the Stage 3 tax cuts. Whether you agree or disagree with them repealing the Stage 3 tax cuts, it would represent a broken promise from the election campaign because they pledged that they wouldn't do it. There's even talk now about franking credits and whether they'll do something in that space. Whether you agree or disagree with them changing franking credits, it would represent a broken election promise. All of that comes back to their so-called smart target strategy, which is potentially a very dumb one once you're in government if you think things need to change, but you don't have the mandate to do it. But it tells you, and we do this, we canvass this obviously in the book, it tells you how, to some extent, myopically focused they were on winning the election because having been stung three years earlier on an election that they thought was unlosable, where they did not trail in a single poll across a single polling agency for three years and then suddenly lost the election on the night, they were so myopically focused politically on getting the win and then they would worry about what comes next the day after that. So that's a really important framework of understanding them. And just finally, before I open up to Q&A, because I'm, I'm on time for that, I just want to say something about... Anthony Albanese quickly for, for a couple of minutes. As, as a Prime Minister, what sort of Prime Minister he's going to be, I think is going to be fascinating. And we canvass this in our analysis of Anthony Albanese, the man in the book. He was a firebrand, factional, hard left socialist operator as a young man. 
and he hasn't lost a lot of those passions. And frankly, I think, if he's honest, he hasn't lost a lot of those policy scripts either in what he believes and, and feels about political issues. What's changed about him is that he's become more pragmatic. It happens to everyone. The older you get, you become more pragmatic, more realistic. And he wants to govern for a long time, but he also wants to make changes. But he's recognised in that, if you like, growing older pragmatism and watching Labor snatch defeat from the jaws of victory time and time again and watching the Rudd and Gillard governments, even if you agree with their policy agenda, have it undone by not entrenching the policy by lasting as a government for longer and by rolling prime ministers. He's seen that incrementalism in policy development and a steady hand and the ability to consult not rather than not are important features of how he can get what he wants ideologically, even if he can't get everything that he wants ideologically. Now, he, he's recognised all of that. He talked to us about a lot of that for the writing of the book. What I'm yet to know, and we pose the question in the book, is whether it actually happens. Uh, there's a big difference between recognising it and actually being able to put it into practice, particularly uh, when you're only one person. Yes, you're the Prime Minister, but you've still got a team around you. Uh, and we saw that, for example, with the recent decision uh, around Jerusalem. Uh, it's, whether you agree or disagree with it, there was limited to no consultation and the announcement of it was botched. Minor issue, but emblematic of potential challenges that you face that can affect implementation. I think that's going to be the interesting thing to see about Anthony Albanese. He's far more pragmatic than he was when he was a young firebrand. Uh, he's softened on the edges. He wants to be there a long time. He's learnt off conservatives, but he does face different forces within his own party, on the crossbench, in the Senate dealing with the Greens, and then he'll, he'll face the realities of how he governs uh, if frustration develops and some of the steps that he tries to develop policy-wise along the way do or don't happen. We try to give readers a bit of a snapshot of that where-to from here, both around what he represents and what the policy dynamics are in the coming years in that final section of the book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. We'll now open for some questions. If you wait till you get the microphone to speak, we are recording this for a podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to pick words from what you said to ask a question. And it's this, when, when we were young, when I was a younger person, it was pretty clear there were the socialists and there were the conservatives. You voted liberal or you voted labor, depending on what your convictions were. You're, we also, when that wore a bit thin, got to the stage of the vision thing. We're missing the vision thing. That was what politics was all about. Now we're hearing rebranding. We're hearing where are they going to go from here? I would like to ask the question, do the, and particularly in the light of the teals and the so-called fragmenting climate change, a big thing, what do our parties stand for other than a self-indulgent desire, like, you know, I can't do it if, even though I believe in it because I mightn't get a second term, 
what do our parties really stand for? Who can we vote for with a conviction? Yeah, look, really good question. Uh, you know, essentially, what do our parties stand for? I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Not much, uh, and the fragmentation of, of politics is a real problem these days. Uh, people, people don't take a team red, team blue attitude in the wider community the way that they once did, and those who do take that view tend to be the remaining political insiders or party members, uh, of whom there are fewer than there once were. You used to have the mass party... Uh, where people were members of major parties, where they tended to vote in blocks for either side, and, and swinging voters were a small quotient of the population. These days, most voters are prepared to swing between the parties, depending on the issues or the personalities or a combination of the two from one election to the next. So what does that leave parties standing for out the other side of it? Unfortunately, and I'll, I'll try to end glass half full, but I'm certainly going to start glass half empty, I think that the real problem here is the professionalisation of politics. And it's a sort of almost unavoidable problem because when one or more parties professionalise, the others have to sort of play the same game. If they don't, they keep losing until they professionalise. What it does is it brings a professional class into politics and those people try to become the politicians. So they become the staffers or they go out and get jobs that help them become the politicians on the CV rather than what it used to be. It used to be a community-building thing on both sides. You know, the Labor Party, you had the trade union movement. It was bigger to start with than it is now and so therefore more encompassing of working-class Australia and you would draw Labor MPs from that, not just from union officials who probably played politics at university before becoming union officials, before becoming Labor MPs, if they didn't go down the staffing route. On the Liberal Party side, you used to draw members of Parliament from community organisations, from small business, not from a failed small business so they go into politics, from corporate Australia as well, or from the professions. These days, they tick the box that they've worked in corporate Australia or that they've worked in the professions. They don't actually work in them to a point of success that they can bring that knowledge and know-how to Parliament. So. The short answer to your question is the problem with the two major parties is that they don't really stand for anything other than getting elected because that's what a professionalised party wants to do, right? They want incumbency. They want all the trappings of government. Uh, they want all the opportunities of extra staffing entitlements that come from government. And their policies then tend to match that desire. In other words, they're looking at polls. What do, what do the people think? I'm their leader. I better follow them. Uh, and they, they don't actually tend to take risks on policy that they have a passion are in the national interest. Now, look, at, at one level, uh, you know, in a, in a, and this is where I'll try to be a little bit more glass half full, in, at one level, in a purely democratic sense, the fact that they're more reflective of public opinion isn't necessarily a bad thing because, you know, we are a democracy. Where it falls down, of course, is that you need to have a conviction to bring people with you and to win people over to ideas that are in their interests but not necessarily the first thing that they would choose to support. Whether you agree or disagree with Howard on the GST, he tried to do that at the 98 election. Whether you agree or disagree with a whole host of things that the Hawke and Keating governments did, they tried to do that at a series of elections when they were instituting microeconomic reform in the 1980s. These days, it doesn't happen as much. So what's the solution to that? Well, that brings you to the teals uh, as, as, a, as an answer. It's at least, a, at the very least, it is a short-term solution to make the parties have to reflect that, guess what, we're now being called out for not standing for anything. 
In the medium to long term, for me, the jury's still out because fragmenting the two-party system ultimately can lead to a more chaotic parliament, and that's a risk. In the short term, I think that's a price worth paying because you need to teach the major parties a lesson. And they're in the middle of learning that lesson now, and it's really only one side learning the lesson. Labor might get it in a term or two, depending on what happens with the Greens and the expansion of the Teals. Uh, I don't know that it's a long-term solution, though, to have too many community independents in Parliament, because my worry would be that it exposes the fault of the two-party system, but if the parties don't then fix that exposed fault, uh, you can actually have a, a, you know, a similarly dysfunctional parliamentary system, but in a different way, in an uncontrolled way, rather than in a highly controlled professional political way. So this one. Thanks, Peter. Um, I'm surprised to hear you say that the Liberal Party had strategists. Um, well, given the fact that they were so deeply drawn down the ScoMo brand path, which was obviously toxic and so forcefully rejected, how did that happen? How did they allow themselves to go down that, that far down that way? Um, what will be their legacy and what will be the ex-dear leader's legacy? Oh, look, I think that Scott Morrison's legacy was already in tatters, but he, he certainly added to that once the information came out about him holding multiple ministries. I mean, I, I just found that extraordinary uh, when it came out and there was, to me, no real justification for it. Maybe the first one, maybe the health minister one, uh, but then after that it's like he became addicted to taking on other people's roles uh, and, and not telling anyone about it. Uh, so I think his legacy in that sense alone is problematic, much less the, the problematic elements to it for all the other reasons that added up to the defeat of the election. To answer your question about how they stuck with him, in a sense, because he won what was supposed to be the unwinnable election in 2019, uh, he had a little bit of the Howard about him going into the 2007 election. He'd pulled rabbits out of the hat before, so therefore you couldn't remove him, and you also didn't have anyone willing to remove him who perhaps could have forced the issue. So, you know, Josh Frydenberg perhaps could have, but instead he was bunking down at the lodge with him during COVID. Uh, and in the end, he then lost the benefits of Josh Frydenberg as the treasurer, you know, campaigning in the election because he was too busy trying to hold on to his seat of Kuyong, which he didn't even do successfully. So it became a profoundly difficult campaign. The strategists in the Liberal Party, if you like, at campaign headquarters, they... They weren't trying to change Scott Morrison, nor remove him, nor, if you like, dictate to him what to do. He ran it out of the Prime Minister's office on all of those fronts, as problematic as that was. They were just trying to work with what they had, which was essentially trying to sell ice to Eskimos. You know, like Scott Morrison was a tough sell by the end of the election, and that's why you saw him constantly trying to strike fear into the hearts of voters about Anthony Albanese or about the Greens alliance, and all of this was in the context of that war on two fronts. Their strategy on that, for what it's worth, was don't try to win the teal seats, try to beat Labor, and if it turns into that two-party contest against Labor, and if we somehow get the upper hand because of gaffes by Labor, the teals will just naturally come back because that, that's, you know, that, that's the way that it will go. I don't think that was a bad strategy. I think that's the only strategy they had, because if he'd just played for trying to hold the teal seats... It wouldn't have been genuine with Scott Morrison as leader and they probably would have lost them all anyway and they would have then also lost some extra outer metropolitan marginal seats along the way by not targeting those bread and butter issues that mattered to them. So they were just caught in a war on two fronts and it's one that they're now caught in going forward, which is what we talk about in the book. You know, the, 
the chapter that takes in a lot of the Liberal Party where to from here, I think is one of the more fascinating ones, sort of academically, if you like, because, you know, Peter Dutton, how's he the solution to an election where you lost a swag of seats to the Teals? You know, I would have thought that he's the antichrist to a solution when it comes to losing Teal seats. So, you know, a lot of these challenges going forward are, are there, but then the argument is who other than Peter Dutton? Um, because who, you know, who is honestly left? Uh, I find it, you know, extraordinary where and how and who they could turn to in terms of the parliamentary team. So much so that I'd probably conclude, you know, anything can happen in politics. Don't take this as a prediction. But, uh, you know, it would not surprise me if the next Liberal Prime Minister isn't even in the Parliament yet. We have time for one more question. This lady over here. Thank you. Thanks for the talk. Um, since the election, there was speculation from various journalists and people that Malcolm Turnbull played a part in the framing of Scott Morrison and his loss of the election. You didn't mention that. Do you think it's a factor? Oh, yes, but I think by the time of the election, Malcolm Turnbull's attitude towards Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party was already pretty well entrenched. So I, I, I certainly think that he was a thorn in their side, uh, but he had been for a while, I suppose, was my point. You know, he originally thought even though he supported Julie Bishop in the showdown uh, against Peter Dutton once he was knocked out of it, he, he ultimately put his support behind Scott Morrison because he wasn't Peter Dutton and he thought they were close and to some extent they were. They'd been close going right back to when Scott Morrison was the state secretary for the Liberal Party when Malcolm Turnbull won his pre-selection in 2003 for the seat of Wentworth in 2004 at the election. Uh, but over time, shortly after he was removed as Liberal leader, Malcolm Turnbull came to the realisation that behind the scenes, somewhere on the scale, Scott Morrison was working against him to get the Prime Ministership. Now, if you believe Scott Morrison, all he was doing was being clever and counting numbers just in case. Malcolm Turnbull doesn't buy that. He thinks that Scott Morrison was deliberately white-handing him and even throwing some of his supporters behind Peter Dutton to bolster his numbers to get rid of Turnbull so that Morrison could come through the middle. So as a result... Uh, the way that we frame, because he does get a mention, the way that we frame Malcolm Turnbull is that he was already a baked-in critic, but even a baked-in critic uh, is still a thorn in your side, you know, mixing my metaphors, uh, if, if, if he's vocal uh, and if the media pay attention. And he is a media magnet, Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, he knows how to have a turn of phrase to get that extra bit of attention. Uh, so, yes, you know, he, he was a factor, but it was a, a factor that they knew was, was there and, and not going anywhere. Oh, one more question. Is that all right? Can I? Yep, one more. What time? Well, I can chat to you afterwards anyway, if yeah, not. But yeah, so, who's this lady down? The back if you want to chat. Here you go. Oh, maybe, maybe oh, two sorry, quick ones. I'll be short in my answer. Do you have uh, an opinion that you can share? How is it going to, these tax cuts going to play out? Do you think there's a pragmatic going? How's it going to work? He wants to keep them. He's not oh, going to be able to. I, I'm, I mean, keep in mind that I've incorrectly predicted almost every leadership change over the last 10 years. I, I'm absolutely convinced that they will change them. What that will look like, I don't yet know. Um, they certainly, I, I certainly don't expect them to do it next week, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did it in the May budget next year. And if the times are tough, then I wouldn't even be surprised if they did it in the following May budget before they're due to take effect halfway through 2024. What that will look like probably involves you know, a recalibration that they can justify circumstances have changed and therefore you need to do it, but we haven't broken our promise. They'll try to tread that territory, but I would be gobsmacked if they did nothing and just let them get legislated as is. Yeah. Do you want... <laughs>
fascinating and it's a fantastic story. Um, I just want to ask the one bad step I think Labour made in the last election was having Christina Camini um, putting her in when they had an excellent local candidate. And I'd just like your opinion about that, why they did it. Yeah. It seemed out of step yeah, I, I can give you the backstory on this very quickly, uh, some of which is in the book, by the way, not uh, a, a shameless plug. <laughs> Christina Keneally uh, getting parachuted into Fowler, uh, she, she wouldn't say this, or maybe she would now post the election, uh, was not her choice. Uh, Deb O'Neill was the Senate person against Christina Keneally. They basi basically only one of them could take the winnable slot. She, by rights, should have had it as the more senior person, a front bencher. However, the problem was was that it was actually a shoppies union spot and Christina's not in the shoppies union. In fact, she's almost the opposite. They would tell you of what the shoppies stand for. Deb was a, a rock-solid shoppies person. The frustration of Christina Keneally allies was that Deb O'Neill, as a shoppies person, the deal done when she got the Senate spot in the first place, I'm led to believe, was that she would then run for Robertson to try to pick the marginal seat up that she once held as a marginal seat MP before she lost it. She rescinded on that, or the shoppies rescinded on that. Once that happened, they weren't willing to give the seat up to Christina Keneally. Anthony Albanese, and this is what's particularly in the book, he was angry at Christina Keneally for moving to Fowler to placate the right, because she was, you know, she's a right-wing factional player. She wanted the right to be happy. That meant not upsetting the shoppies. So she did it. She thought she would win, but she did it uh, to placate the right. Anthony Albanese was very personally angry at her for doing that because he thought it could be a problem. He thought she'd win it, but he thought it could be a problem. But he was annoyed that he wasn't allowed to use his authority to have the person he wanted staying in the Senate as deputy leader if they won the election under Penny Wong without the turmoil and the sort of the all the things you mentioned about it looking bad, knocking out a local candidate, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it happened. Uh, she became a victim of a, a factional deal uh, that nobody wanted except the shoppies, um, but they had the right to it because that's the way that Senate allocations work in the Labor Party. Um, so Peter will be signing copies of his book at the back, which are for sale through Constant Reader Bookshop. So please join me then, thanking Peter. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.